Okay, should we get into it with John Stuart Mill? Let's try. Anything okay. you want, in fact. Yeah, I, well, we might have some general questions as well, but uh, I, I really enjoyed the John Stuart Mill chapter of GOAT. Thank and you. I feel like he's underappreciated, so I wanted to cover off some topics with you. Sure. So first question, why don't more economists write biographies? Because it's only like Mill and Keynes, right? Those are the ones that come to mind. The return to writing a biography is not very high. So if you're someone like Walter Isaacson and you write a biography of Elon Musk, it could be a bestseller. But most biographies don't sell. They may get you tenure in history departments. But for economics, it's worth uh, very little, basically zero. It's a lot of work. It takes years of time. So why do it? Mill potentially had more impact on the world through his autobiography than through many of his other writings, though, right? If you want to spread ideas and get people to just do things differently, it might be the best choice. That's possible. But keep in mind, Mill wasn't writing his autobiography as an economist, right? He was writing it as a more general thinker. And I don't think it actually has been very successful in spreading Mill's economics ideas. So, and then, you know, biography and autobiography, they're quite different. In today's academic world, if you write an autobiography, you're seen as washed up and self-indulgent. Now, <laughs> I quite like the autobiographies of James Buchanan, uh, of Vernon Smith, and others. And maybe they're sometimes self-indulgent, but those are often their best features, right? Isn't that what we really want in a way <laughs> from an autobiography? But still, people do it when they're much older and when their career is, if not over, you know, the peaks are behind them. What are the most important things that economists today can learn from Mill? When you use that word economists, it makes me nervous. I, I, I would say social scientists and people in the humanities, they can learn just how profound an individual mind can be, how important it is to get multiple perspectives on a phenomenon. Uh, they learn, I would say, the power of classical liberalism and that it's a deeper philosophy than is usually appreciated. But they also learn some kind of method for approaching reality and how to teach oneself and how to improve one's own ideas throughout one's life. Now, yes, all that applies to economists, but I'm not sure like what you would learn as an economist from reading Mill, except, you know, on a few very particular topics, which we could talk about. Right. You have a section where you, you talk about some of the ideas in his general economic writings, his understanding of the way supply and demand interact and say his law. And you say, how many economists today are really able to sort of comprehend these ideas in the way Mill did. Um, That's right. So today there's a common tendency to think that a deficiency in aggregate demand can last for many, many years. I'm not sure where that idea came from, uh, but somehow it is stuck. Now, it's very hard to find coherent models where that is the case. And Mill had a very clear exposition of this in one of his essays in Some Unsettled Questions on Political Economy, where he pointed out in the short run Say's law may not hold, there can be excess demand for money, but over some you know, intermediate time horizon, markets adjust and aggregate demand and aggregate supply balance. So cyclical theories based on a shortfall in aggregate demand, as we would today call it, well, those are short run theories, not long run theories. And Mill on that was completely correct and quite clear. 
And we knew that, say, in the 1980s, even the 1990s. Somehow it's been forgotten. Mill is one place where you can relearn that. You talked also about, like, he understands secondary consequences, bargaining power, some behavioral economics insights, causality, right? And he knows you talk about how he exhibits some of the things that come up later in Gary Becker. But all of this stuff that Mill was so, like, prescient about, was he actually an influence on later economic thinking? Or is it all just kind of coincidental that he happened to be right about a lot, but no one has really learned from him directly? Because I don't feel like Mill is a big presence in people's reading and thinking today. I don't think he's a big presence today. But keep in mind, as late as 1900, basically 30 years after the Marginal Revolution, Mill's Principles was still a standard textbook. Okay. So that's one way in which he had enormous influence. But did that influence actually stick? I think you're right to suggest in many ways it did not. But nonetheless, this British notion that labor bargaining power is quite important and we need to yeah. worry about trade unions, but within the framework of a market economy, that persists to this day in your country. And Mill is one of the main places it comes from. Uh, I don't even think that's one of his best ideas, but that's one <laughs> of his influences uh, that is still with us. And maybe you would attribute that to Mill more than anyone else because it's it's not really Marx, right? In the Marxian approach, the workers are doomed no matter what, at least until the next stage of history comes. They're right. going to be immiserated. And Mill had a more optimistic sense thinking you need to experiment with all these different methods of corporate governance and labor-managed firms and you know cooperatives and so on. So right. maybe that's his main influence. Uh, I don't actually think it's so important, at least not yet. I mean, it's striking that some of the Fabians, like the Webbs, were very interested in Mill, and maybe that sort of tarnished his reputation for other people a little bit. I was interested in, like, why was Hayek so wrong about Mill and socialism, for example? Well, Hayek is a grump, I would first say. But I think one problem with <laughs> Mill is simply the way it's distributed across various books. There's, what, 32 or 33 volumes. Yeah. There's not any one single place you can go and imbibe Mill. There's not any single simple way of summarizing it all. And that makes him just much harder to absorb. And I think that's the number one reason why Mill is not more influential rather than anything intellectual. Like Keynes, you read the general theory. You can even read just two or three chapters of it, get some key ideas. It can be bastardized, maybe in sometimes in bad ways, but it can be bastardized quite readily. Same with Milton Friedman. Mill, there's just no way to do that and keep the integrity of the ideas themselves. Is this like a major failing of Mill's? There's no equivalent of on, on the origin of species or some kind of seminal book that really sets out what he thinks? Does it reflect that he doesn't have central ideas, maybe? Is it a failing or is it a virtue? So if you see one of his main contributions is this idea of approaching ideas from multiple perspectives and always trying to improve your own understanding, maybe that resists summarization in a single book. And Mill is there for the truly dedicated who are willing to work through you know, a, a higher number of volumes. <laughs> He's a beautiful writer, but I don't think you can read him quickly either. And that also makes it hard. That's true. So should there be more classes that teach like the history of Mill's ideas and influence specifically to sort of dig out some of these issues that won't come up on like a general syllabus or like you read on liberty, but then you get stuck in a whole load of questions about 
is he consistent? Does it make sense? When you need to have maybe more focus on the other works. I will teach Mill in my history of economic thought class this spring. I'm curious to see how the students respond. But as you indicated, on liberty is taught, you know, quite right. frequently in political philosophy or philosophy classes. I don't think you get a great sense of Mill from that work alone. He comes across as someone who failed to outline a coherent defense of liberalism. When in fact, I think that's wrong. But if you only read on liberty, uh, it's probably correct. If you read his essays on civilization and character development, you get a much better idea of why. I wouldn't say he succeeded, but he, he put up something that hasn't been knocked down yet. I, I would say that. How relevant are Mill's ideas about education reform today? Well, we need more experimentation. And I think Mill understood that. And he understood the value of the classics. And he understood the value of educating people very early. So I'm on board with all of those ideas. Uh, the internet is helping a great deal in ways, you know, Mill probably could never have anticipated. So, uh, yes. Places like the University of Austin, though, where we have new institutions coming in, or like there are new free schools in, the, in Britain, do they really reflect the sort of things Mill was arguing for? Well, University of Austin hasn't started yet. Uh, you know, Pano, who, who runs the thing, he used to be president of St. John's, uh, which taught Mill in a very good way. So I'm hopeful, uh, okay. but I couldn't tell you what they're doing. Now, the British schools, I don't know at all what their curricula are like. So it seems to me overall we're far from it. The future for Mill is probably an Internet future. I don't think the Internet in particular helps Mill. Again, the key writings are a mix of too long and they're not very skimmable. And the internet is wonderful for things that are skimmable and can be turned into aphorisms. And that's not Mill. So he's still going to struggle for a while. You know, I and you, we're both doing our best to promote Mill. <laughs> and I think people are intrigued. But it's, you know, a long, tough slog. Yeah, I'm hopeful that as like, as the internet and now GPT continues to sort of separate the long, slow books from the skimmable books, you might get a core of people who are more interested in going back to Mill if they become sort of their quotes on the side of reading. And um, the GPT-5 version of Mill might be very, very good indeed, mm, right? I hold yeah. out hope for that. Again, we'll see. I don't feel the GPT-4 version of Mill is no. fantastic. It's okay, uh, but it's not going to do the trick. No. Um, was Mill ultimately just too optimistic about what education could achieve and how much people could be improved? I don't think we know yet, but if you look at uh, what became a central issue, the rights of women, I think we've made far more progress than even he would have predicted. Yeah. If you look at the question, well, in the Western world, how many people either beat their kids or send their kids out for bad forms of child labor, molest their children? Uh, we've seen remarkable progress. We haven't in every way. Drug addiction possibly is a, a much worse problem. Uh, but again, Mill has not been refuted, I would say that. And in a number of key areas, uh, reality is on his side. But how much is it the case that like voters have been well-educated and we get better outcomes under democracy than people anticipated? And how much is it the case that we kind of swing between good democratic outcomes and then the kind of, you know, uh, the worst outcomes that we see in that 
Mill was like half right, but ultimately you can't contain that side of democracy very much. Well, to be half right is pretty amazing for one show. <laughs> yeah, no, sure. more, even <laughs> half right. I'll settle for 49%. I do think policy today is much better than it was in Mill's time. Mm -hmm. But some of that, maybe most of that, is just that we have more resources, right? You wouldn't necessarily say it's because voters are wiser. But there's some workable version of the median voter theorem that the U.S. and the U.K. live under. There's plenty in what the median voter wants that I feel is misguided. Uh, but again, it hasn't failed. And some, you know, Mill's biggest mistake, I think, was on India. And did Britain eventually do the right thing on India? Absolutely, they did. And voters were more than fine with that. So again, uh, Mill is still in the running to be right there. Should more economists stand for election? It's much more common on the European continent than in the United States. In part, that's because economists in the U.S. can earn more money in the private sector or by doing consulting. Uh, someone's done a study of you know, continental economists in power and how they did. Luigi Einaudi is one, a uh, number of people in Germany. I think in the immediate post-war era, their record is pretty good, but after that, it just converges to the ordinary. So it's not obvious to me that more economists should run for office. You're very constrained. Was Mill naive about contraception and Malthus? Because if you look around, the rate of divorce is relatively high. We don't know how much adultery there is, but it seems to be like reasonably widespread. Fertility rates are falling. Is the truth like somewhere between the two of them? When I read Mill on contraception, which he's not very explicit about, sure. I feel I never know what he's truly thinking. So I'm not sure how naive he was. Uh, I think there's a number of aspects of the contemporary world that very few people would have predicted. Uh, such a low fertility rate would be one of them. So much premarital sex, I think, would be another, though the Victorians definitely had their, their Randy side, oh, yeah. <laughs> not always, you know, out there on the page. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think Mill would be surprised by, say, the sexual revolution of the 1960s and what came after it. And he probably expected something more like U.S. life in the 1950s, you know, plus greater availability of birth control. But that's speculation, because what Mill really thought on these issues, it was where he faced the most implicit censorship and caught the most grief. Yeah. So hard to say. He must have had fascinating conversations with Harriet Taylor about this. And I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for those. Indeed. What's your view of Harriet Taylor? Is she a muse? Is she a collaborator? Is she just Mill? Is Mill just getting the echo of himself back from her? Like, how do you read that? You know, she wrote a, a short piece on the emancipation of women, which is quite good but it does not itself answer your questions. I think she's a full-blown collaborator after some point. She's a muse. She's a, a stimulant. She's also, it's like the Beatles, John and Paul and the Beatles. They're the audience you have to please, and you need the right audience to do great work. And in Harriet Taylor, Mill had the right audience. So I think it's all of those things. How much have we just totally misunderstood Mill by not really 
making Harry at the centre of how we think about him and taking seriously his claims uh, for her abilities? Well, there's a much earlier mill for many years where Harriet is not the major influence, and that mill is quite splendid. So I'm not sure people neglect Harriet that much. Maybe people on the right do, or classical liberals or libertarians who read Mill do, because they've read Hayek and they get nervous about subjection of women. <laughs> but my sense is the world as a whole, like sort of left-wing humanities people, don't neglect Harriet Taylor. Okay. Did Mill live up to his potential? I would say he exceeded his potential. So if you're just sent back to Britain when Mill is 18 and you're thinking, well, what's this guy going to do? And you set out a probability distribution, he's in the 99th percentile, I would say. And he was right about most issues. Let's not forget that. Yeah. Universal you know, suffrage, uh, equal rights against slavery, rights of women. Education. Uh, Education, wanting some more humane form of capitalism, but still defending property and realizing incentives are extremely important. He was mostly correct. Who did he take more from, Bentham or Coleridge? Well, clearly Bentham, in my opinion. But the correction from Coleridge was essential. Because Bentham already was Bentham. That was a kind of dead end. And you needed to add some new element to the mix. And you know, whether or not it was Coleridge, the Germans, just Mill observing the history of his time, I don't know that it was actually Coleridge at all. I think Coleridge is a vessel into which Mill is putting all these different influences. And don't underestimate simply living at that historical point in time as the other influence and seeing, you know, Bentham really didn't have all the answers. I actually think of it the other way. I think Coleridge is more important. He goes to see Coleridge a lot in his house, and there's something about the presence of Coleridge that is, that's the antithesis to Bentham in a way. He's grown up with Bentham, right? And just being with Coleridge and these other people is is like more transformative. It gives him access to many-sidedness. And what he gets from Bentham is more of a negative thing of like, he has the first thing of reading Bentham and saying, my goodness, everyone else in history has been wrong. But then he has to work through why Bentham is wrong about everything. And that's what Coleridge, Coleridge is the positive side of that. You see what I mean? I think of early influences as usually being the strongest. And Bentham was clearly an earlier influence. Hmm. And Mill never goes full-blown romantic, even on issues such as endowments. He keeps mixed feelings and the authoritarianism of Coleridge, Mill never takes right. on. These skepticism about progress, Mill becomes skeptical in the sense that, well, we might be entering the stationary state. We're not going to get enough progress. But he's always wanting there to be more progress and trying to figure out how to get there. So in all of those regards, you know, penal reform, uh, the work on Jamaica, slavery, that all seems much more Benthamite to me. Running for office seems more Benthamite. Uh, emancipation of women seems more Benthamite. Was Coleridge so progressive on that issue? He was a but, grump himself. Coleridge. But he was, yeah, very much, especially when Mill knew him. But like, could Mill have really become, like Mill's theoretically right on all of these issues early in his life, but he's not able to start making actual progress in terms of changing people's minds in his writings, in his other work, until he's met Coleridge and he's met Harriet. And without those two, he's just another, he's just like his father, right? He's another Benthamite who we're not reading today. 
that's like an out there reading, but there's some truth to that, maybe. I think he's much smarter than his father, even mm. before Coleridge and Harriet, and just broader. And my guess, this is speculation, but that the Bentham and the Benthamites, they come over to the house. Even as a kid, I think he's a little fed up about this. Like, who are these people? Why aren't they broader-minded? Uh, I suspect they seem a little petty to him. So the groundwork is being laid for the Coleridge revelations, and that's coming from Mill himself, I think. Again, speculation. Well, is that maybe because of, um, I wonder if that's the role of religion? Because he's thought of as this very secular person brought up by his father to be secular, but his mother goes to church, his sisters who he teaches become religious themselves. And is there just something about being in a house where you have those two kind of um, totally opposed worldviews, part of what he grows up seeing both and thinking, well, you can't both be right. You, you should both try and find some middle ground. Do you think there's something of that? There is, but I think in a way he decides they're both right. It's not that I think he ever accepts the Trinity and Jesus as his savior, sure. but that there's something essential in the religious worldview concerning character development that is arguably healthier than what Coleridge is trying to feed everyone. And Mill takes that on rather gladly. He's a secular thinker in the sense that he was a skeptic, but I don't read him as a fully secular thinker. No. He's always looking for higher levels of meaning. He's quite concerned with religion. Ultimately, I feel he would like to defend religion in some way as a semi-optimal means of character development. And maybe he doesn't get to that conclusion, uh, but not a secular thinker in the way that, say, you know, David Deutsch or Steven Pinker might be. I was surprised when I read his letters how much time he spent in churches. Yeah, very, very drawn to churches. And at that time, churches, you know, probably were the most beautiful thing you could see flat yeah. out. There weren't so many art museums. Uh, you were paintings were not that accessible. Churches were there; they were incredible in England, especially. Mm -hmm. And uh, how can it not make a major impression on you? You say at one point that um, Mill is more concerned with institutions than ideas. I think. Um, but there's a quote from John Sterling who said that Mill was raised to believe that institution, institutional reform was what mattered in the Benthamite sense. But then after his crisis, he realized that actually you have to reform yourself to reform society. So it isn't, is the kind of real picture that institutions need reforming and that's the Benthamite cause, but the lever you pull is reforming yourself, reforming other people through ideas and like changing the bureaucratic structure or whatever is kind of a secondary concern. I'm not sure what I said. Uh, what I think is that for Mill, you need to do both, the institutions and the ideas. And it's a kind of mutually mutual reinforcement process with snowballing virtues and gains once you get the ball rolling. And uh, you could have ideas of character development, but you still need someone like a Mill or even in some regards a Bentham who, who tells you what to do about it. So, you know, the, the voting systems that Mill favored, he thought were quite important. They're actually making a comeback in recent times. Uh, mm. He wrote a whole book on them, right? It took a lot of time. He put a lot of effort into those arguments. Yeah. Not convinced he was correct, but I think for Mill, it's both ideas and institutions.
how well known is Mill among like rationalists and effective altruists and people like that in your experience? Typically not at all. I'm sure there are some who know them, but I've said to many an effective altruist, well, you need to read John Stuart Mill's two essays, <laughs> Bentham and Coleridge, they're the yeah. best things on effective altruism ever written by anyone <laughs> to this day. And not one person has ever said to me, oh, I've read those, of course. They're like, what's that? They've never heard of them. And I say, they're online and free, and they're not that long. And they're two of the best essays ever written, and you need to read them in conjunction. So that, to me, is just a sign of a, a massive civil, civilizational gap, and also a gap in the intellectual heritage of effective altruism, that people don't know these things. Are we, as post-Freudians, able to understand Mill's childhood properly, or are we too fixated on our own kind of psychological assumptions? Are we, we post-Freudians yet? Well, I don't. <laughs> I just mean like we're Freudians. We're, we since we come after Freud, are we bound to read his childhood in a way that just wouldn't be recognizable to the people involved in it? And does it lead us astray, or does that mean, yeah, we basically understand what happened to him? I don't think we understand it, but I'm not sure our partial Freudianism is at fault. For one thing, I just don't trust the autobiography, and that's sure. our main source. I trust Mill's honesty and sincerity. It's very hard to write about your own childhood, and there's also a tendency to protect family members when people do it. And Mill was, in my view, a very good-natured soul. So I suspect his father was worse with him than Mill lets on, and mm. what James Mill's motives really were, what kind of person he was, I don't know. When I just read James Mill straight up and try to forget about John Stewart, he's not that attractive a character to me. He, he seems quite dogmatic. Uh, as Mill asserts, uh, very fixed and rigid in his views. When it comes to British India, uh, in many ways a, a harmful figure and not, not very self-aware about even the possibility that it might be harmful. So I don't know. I, I don't feel we've gotten close to the bottom of that, and probably we never will. Uh, was Mill right about the death penalty? You know, Mill's argument for the death penalty is that it is less cruel than locking up someone for life and a better deterrent, and therefore we should do it. I would say this, if we never made mistakes, Mill arguably was correct about the death penalty, but we make too many mistakes in our judicial systems. So in that regard, I think he was wrong, but he had a very important point. He developed a whole theory of optimal deterrence well in advance of say Gary Becker among many others. And it's a fascinating, it's not even an essay, it's just a speech he gave before parliament. It's a few pages, but it's absolutely brilliant. It, to me, it's one of the most surprising things he wrote because he's so concerned with the value of life everywhere else. And he comes so close to almost saying things like every human life is sacred, that it's kind of a remarkable um, change in his thinking. And I'm not quite sure how to account for it. There's a Parfitian element in it. So, you know, Derek Parfit raised the question, does causing someone not to exist harm them? that collapses into a lot of semantics. But there is a sense in which once you're gone, you're not harmed anymore. And if you're still around, locked up, your life is ruined anyway. Maybe on net you're suffering, especially in prisons of that time. 
and you're being harmed more. So maybe valuing life very highly does in fact mean that at least under some conditions, the death penalty is better. But again, I would stress this point uh, that especially in the United States, we've uncovered so many cases of people sentenced unjustly. In fact, we have killed many of them. That just seems to me deontologically flat out wrong. And I would draw the line there and just not want to go there. But in some ideal world, maybe I would agree with Mill. I feel like Mill believes that implicitly in a lot of his other works. But then in this speech, he kind of persuades himself out of the common sense view that like killing people is a form of suffering and we should really try and prevent it. And I'm not, I don't, it's uh, sort of but admirable the way he does it. better for either for you or for Mill. I, well, why wouldn't he argue for prison reform in that case? If you think about the limited resources available in mid-19th century Victorian Britain, how good are those prisons going to get? Yeah. No, that's true. That's true. Um, Mill talked about the boredom of the rich. And there have been a couple of profiles recently of people like Jeff Bezos and Peter Thiel. And you kind of feel the sense in those profiles that like maybe maybe Mill was right. Maybe there is a boredom of the rich. So this debate about does more money make you happy? Should we sort of reconsider that maybe there is a plateau, but it's just way, way higher up on the income scale than we thought? I once had a conversation with a wealthy person and he suggested to me the optimal level of wealth was $500 million. My guess, by the way, is that he had about $500 million, (laughs) which is not mega wealthy. But I think it's he had quite a good argument. He pointed out, you're not so, so famous because of your wealth alone. Like you may or may not have done something that's that's renowned. Mm. Uh, Your friends still might be your friends. You can manage the publicity. You probably don't have to travel with security. So there's a lot of heterogeneity in human affairs, but I found that somewhat convincing that for many people, for me, the number would be much lower than 500 million. I think it's more like 50 million, in fact. But if you have 500 million, uh, you're probably going to end up thinking, well, you need 500 million to do all the things you want to do. How much of a problem are the stultifying effects of the division of labor today? If you look in academia, academics have become more boring. They're less interested in reading and talking about John Stuart Mill would be one instantiation of that. They've become technicians. Uh, they're on average, I think, less curious than academics, say, of two generations ago. Now, the quality of research they produce is much higher. Is that on net a bad thing? Maybe not. Are parts of that a problem? I would say yes. So there's a lot of professions. I just think they've always been so boring that more division of labor doesn't make them worse. Like, say you're a paper boy. You deliver you know, the New York Times in the morning, and you throw it out your car window. Uh, Today, compared to 50 years ago, it's probably a lot less boring today. You have better music in your car. You know, you can, in a variety of ways, uh, do things while you're working that you couldn't have done 50 years ago. So it's a complicated story. But in some areas, yes, it has been stultifying. If people read John Stuart Mill, they probably read On Liberty. Maybe they read the autobiography. What is the number one book you would actually recommend that they read? Is it On Liberty or is it something else? I think On Liberty should be the last major mill work you read. 
Because to me, it only makes sense when you know all the problems he set out in the others. Yet for most people, it's the first one they read. I would say start with the autobiography, then read Bentham and Coleridge, and then read Subjection of Women, and then read his short essay online. It's just called Civilization. That is my suggested order. And then if you're economist, read essays on some unsettled questions in political economy, which is also pretty short. And why should they read in that order? Autobiography gets you interested, and being interested is what is scarce. And probably it's the most beautifully written. Bentham yeah. and Coleridge shows you the breadth of Mill's thought, and it's the thing you really need to read to understand all the rest, including on liberty. Uh, and then you're off to the races. Subjection of women is, it's hard to compare that to an autobiography, but in some ways it's Mill's greatest work and most important, and where Mill has been most victorious, and where his reasoning is the sharpest. So why not have that be number three? If you just read on liberty, you're going to talk yourself into going around in circles. Oh, the harm principle, what are the exceptions? Is Mill consistent here? What do we do in liberty and utility clash? And you have none of the rest of the intellectual equipment from Mill to sort out those issues at all. And you'll just think he was a muddled guy who had some ideas that in principle you like, but it all collapsed in a heap of contradictions. And that's what most people think. I get why they think it. In my view, it's wrong, though. What are the best secondary works on Mill? Nothing really substitutes for reading Mill himself. I like your recent essays on Mill and Harriet Taylor. <laughs> Can I recommend those? And they're online and they're free. Of course. Yes. No, please do recommend them. <laughs> and my own chapter, you know, in uh, econgoat.ai, my book, Who's the Greatest Economist of All Time, titled Goat, uh, are the thoughts that I think are most important. So how can I not recommend what I what I wrote too? Very good. Um, are you up for some more general questions? Absolutely. What is the best novel you have read recently or the last novel you read that really impressed you? I have a post coming on this in a few days. Probably it'll be out by the time this is released. And it's titled something like My Favorite Fiction, you know, 2023. Uh, this Romanian novel, Solenoid, I thought was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Good enough to be, say, one of the 15 best novels of the last 20 or 30 years. Not mm -hmm. quite up at Knavsgaard or Ferrante or Sebald, but just somewhat below those. Uh, that would be a clear winner. It's the one knockout work I read this year. So right. no, no doubt what I would pick. What about John Foss? What do you think of him? I've tried it several times. I don't make progress. I suspect it's very, very good in Norwegian. Uh, but right now it's a cipher to me. It, in essence, does not exist. What was the last great poetry you read? I reread classic poetry on a reasonably frequent basis. Uh, something newer, Louise Gluck, I, I read some of maybe two months ago. You know, yeah. She died I th earlier this year. And I read some more of her. That's great poetry. It's not very, very new. Uh, I don't, in general, read poetry just coming out. But just yesterday, I ordered a new collection of poetry from Sri Lanka uh, in English and then translated into English. And that's supposed to be a very good collection. And a lot of that is quite new. And I will read it. Mill had a real emphasis on the importance of reading fiction and poetry and, and the humanities. What would your very short 
introductory syllabus be for people who are very quantitative but don't spend enough time with the humanities? You have to know something about the person. But for me, you know, the absolute priority is Shakespeare mm -hmm. by far. And then after that, again, it depends what the person will relate to. But for me, Proust would come next, some Franz Kafka, perhaps, maybe some Thomas Mann, Cervantes, Tolstoy, of course, including Tolstoy's short fiction, Spencer's The Fairy Queen, British Romantic Poetry of the early 19th century. I mean, you can go on and on. Harold Bloom's book, The Western Canon, I think is actually an incredibly good and on-target reading list. I would just say read all that, but that's an absurd commandment to give someone, right? But that is actually what you should say. And the order they have to figure out, Plato's dialogues, there's so much that's important, you know, you would say essential. But I start yeah. with Shakespeare. I agree with that, and I agree with your assessment of Bloom. I think he's actually underrated today, if anything. And I think he'll make a big comeback, that book in particular. I see so many people on Twitter wanting to read through the classics and wanting a guide to do that. Yeah. And by now, most of those people have discovered Bloom, but I think that will really stick that book and his name and become a truly huge thing over the next 50 years, probably even longer. What was the last great recording of music you listened to? I don't know if it's great. I've heard it for the second time. There's a Norwegian composer. His name is Sorensen. And he composed a, a, a redo of St. Matthew Passion quite recently. And I've heard it twice. I quite like it. I'm not sure if it's great. I listen to Bach almost every day. I've been listening a lot to the violin sonatas and partitas for solo violin lately. Uh, those would be some things I'm listening to. I just listened through all of the Bach cantatas, and I do mean all of them, from my wow. podcast with Masaki Suzuki. And that was a revelatory experience. And I'm going to go back and spend a lot more time with those. So that what would be part of it. Uh, the Mozart, the piano gig. I think it's about a minute and a half long. Uh, I've been listening to that lately. I had never really understood that piece before. And in some ways, it's the precursor of Schoenberg and 12-tone music. And Mozart did it, my goodness, you know, in the late 18th century. So that's been a revelation for me. Such a short piece and so good. What did you learn from listening to all of the cantatas? Bach is much better a composer than I'd thought. And I already thought he was the greatest composer of all time. But simply Bach is a producer of output. We grossly underrate. How did he manage to do that? And he had many children. <clears throat> he had several years when his first wife had passed away. And he did not obviously <clears throat> have a lot of help with the kids. And even if you just calculate how much time would it have taken him to write out all those musical parts, forget about the composing, just as a, a scribe, it seems impossible. And yet it's the, the best music of all time. And it's so dramatic, the cantatas, how he really brought the cantata form to fruition. He didn't create it, but he picked up on it. And he realized this is the medium through which I can make my music truly dramatic. I hadn't really fully grasped that before. Which recordings do you recommend? Well, Suzuki's are by far the best. And that's a consensus opinion. It's not just me saying that because I just did a podcast with him. They're the best. And you can buy them all. 
Uh, there's online access also, but I just bought the 55 CDs of the sacred cantatas, and I'm guessing it's like 12 or 13 of the secular cantatas. What did you think about Sam Bankman's freed argument that Shakespeare can't have been the best because he was so long ago and there have been more people now and uh, that kind of thing? Well, that's crazy. I mean, it's something else I would recommend. If you're going to read 15 or 20 essays in your whole life, you know, which ones should you read? William yeah. Hazlitt on progress in the arts, you know, yes. would be in the top 15 essays that everyone should read. And it's something Mill understood quite well, I would add. Yeah. Shakespeare was a, a more profound thinker than, than anyone ever, in my opinion. I think a lot of our best painting was done in the 17th century, not today. Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, the greatest composers by really any stretch of the imagination. Even if you want to put the Beatles up there, that's a long time ago. <laughs> so there's so many wonderful things from the past. I mean, just on, on Bayesian terms, you know, Sam gets slaughtered. But in his defense, someone told me he wrote that essay in the 11th grade. So, like, I wouldn't hold that against him. If a smart 11th grader says that, my attitude is like, it's great you're even thinking about this. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Mill is actually quite a good literary critic as well, which doesn't get a lot of attention because of his other work. But uh, his review of Tennyson and his poetry essay, I would say, are fundamental. He's interesting on the ancients, on French history, on Tocqueville. Any yeah. topic you get him on, he's just amazing. And again, most people don't realize that. What are the other of the 15 essays or just some of the other essays that you think are essential? Well, a bunch of them are by mail and we've been talking about them. Sure. So Bentham and Coleridge. Can I cite Jonathan Swift? Culliver's Travel is not really an essay. Uh, maybe I'll do a blog post on that and come up with a more systematic list. Some Susan Sontag, some Camille Paglia, I would say. Sontag, yeah. I would say for Swift, the Drapier's Letters. Um, I like them very much. I just don't know if they count as an essay rather than a pamphlet. But they're they're grossly underrated. Yeah. Yeah, very much. Shows you the Irish have been obsessed with payments for a long time, right? <laughs> yeah, and I note that uh, Patrick Collinson has spoken about the Bentham and Coleridge essays favorably in the past. I recommended them to Patrick. Oh, did you? Yes. Yeah, very good. Um, Tyler, thank you very much. This was great, and I'm glad that we can promote John Stuart Mill. My pleasure. And let's do this again sometime on other topics. Definitely. I look forward to it. Good to chat with you. Take care.